you see those fools at the back of the class They don't care about grades or if they pay or pass They ain't here to learn, they're just here for laughs The day you're home will just tear it in half If you want blood, you got it You trap a keeper, I'll on it Give me a crap, I'll plot it This ain't the tension, baby, this is the The audit is brought to you by The Lever, a reader-supported investigative news outlet. You can go to levernews.com to find all of their reporting. You can also subscribe to Lever News weekly news podcast, Lever Time, which is available on all major podcast players. If you'd like to support this show, head over to levernews.com slash audit to become a paid supporter. Basically, The Lever built its own version of Patreon, and they even cut out the middleman. And this is how it works. When you become a paid supporter, part of that money goes to the creative team at the audit, and part of that money goes to the lever. So not only are you supporting this show, but you'll be directly supporting the lever's independent journalism. Audit supporters will get expanded episodes of the audit and every single episode of the new series in advance, the day the first episode drops. On top of that, each of our supporters will also get access to the Lever's premium content, including their exclusive newsletters, private podcast feed, ebooks, and live events. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can find the audit's tip jar at levernews/audit and leave us a tip. Dave, we are this is crazy. I mean, I knew I knew when uh, we hooked up at the Lever, we'd be um, you know getting getting more respectable, uh, but I did not expect to get. Um, this this respectable this fast uh yeah but I'm, i i undermine like i'm a counterbalance that is correct to any respect we get i i can take us down low is what i'm saying that that is true um and i i said to our guest when i talked to her on the phone just to i mean mostly just to make sure it was actually her because it sounded like her i mean i you know we've been what's the, the great andy coffin line i'm from hollywood like we're from hollywood uh, I, I've, I've, I've worked with Mick. I wrote a script with Mick Jagger. I'm like, I, I don't get starstruck. I'm like, and, and, um, I was on the phone and now I am on a, uh, video conference. I'm recording a podcast with the one and only Senator Nina Turner. And not only is she here talking to us, she's here doing our dopey podcast where we <laughs> talk trash about people we don't like for weeks on end but um <laughs> senator turner thank you so much for joining us this is this is such a huge honor for dave and me i i can't begin to tell you well it's an honor for me to be with you and dave josh you all have me cracking up i'm holding in my laughs this is so funny as hell i'm glad to be here glad that sarota he knows how to bring good people together so i appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast um, he does. And I, I, I don't know if I, I, I was talking to him when I don't want to bring things down, but when you were going through that, um, uh, and boy, if it makes me mad, I can't imagine how it makes you feel. So great, great way to start by pissing off our guest. But, um, when you're going through the situation with Chantel Brown, the first time, um, yeah. I was talking to Sorota at the time and he was, I, he was quivering. Um, and he said, and I don't know if he's ever said this to your face, but I want to tell you that he says this behind your back that, that. He goes, um, she is the best person I've ever met in politics. 
Uh, you, by the way. He was talking about you, <laughs> I should say. not. Yeah. Although that's... <laughs> okay, fine. That's a yes, far. Granted, it's politics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh, Dave, don't steal That's the nice. moment. Don't yeah, do there it. You go. I was I was really feeling that. <laughs> I, and come, Dave said he could take us lower, so he meant that. He meant it. That's right. He was not playing. No, Josh, he did. Uh, Sorota never shared that with me, but definitely it made me get goosebumps to hear you say that. That means a lot. Yeah. Because I mean, politics it, it, is uh, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's a rough and tumble. Uh, you're a great, you're a great, you're a great, great example of if you truly want to help people, how much the system will attack you. Yeah, and no doubt. you know, Democrats always say the right votes against their interests, but your race is a glaring example of how Democrats do the same thing. Yeah, yeah they do. They'll they'll come after progressives harder than they would ever battle a Republican. And that is a fact. And I often say that they would almost kill off their own mama to stop a progressive. I really mean that. I don't think that is over the top. And what happened in my race, both in the special election, and then as you both know, and others of our listeners know, I ran in the regular election cycle right after that. They were just as vicious. They were so vicious that they actually, they actually took the model that they used to defeat me and used it in other places across oh, the yeah, country to, to attack progressives. Yeah. Yeah. But I appreciate you both. And I definitely appreciate Sirota. Well, I, I did. I also want to sort of test the waters because I can't see how that one's not going to come up a bit. As we discuss over the next couple of episodes, we are going to, we should tell the audience we're going to be, uh, in case you don't know, um, we're doing another master class, and uh, David Axelrod and Carl Rove are going to be teaching campaign strategy and messaging. Uh, <laughs> this is a nice follow up. I don't know if you know this, Senator, our last one we did, uh, George W. Bush teaching leadership, um, which was pretty amazing. And and our entree into all this was on our last podcast, The West Wing Thing, when we did, uh, we did how many episodes did we do, Dave? We did. Um, Hillary Clinton did an entire masterclass on uh, resilience. Yeah, on, Josh, on I canceled. Dave, I don't know. I told Josh, <laughs> sorry to cut you off, Josh. Dave, I told Josh, I, I used to have a subscription to masterclass. Oh. And when they put the Honorable Hillary Clinton on there, I canceled my subscription. <laughs> I did. That day. I don't know why you would do that because I can't think of anybody uh, who could teach you more about resilience than someone who has spent the last five years blaming everything that went wrong <laughs> with her presidential campaign in 2016 on everybody else but her. She is a model right. who is a great class. Anyway. Oh, yeah, they lost me, Dave, on that one. I said, I'm out of here. You got to well, tell they, me twice. I am not wanted. <laughs> they become a go-to place now for these politicians to uh, whitewash their their past, and and this is another good example. Although this time it's interesting because now we have a Democrat um, being blatantly used by a right winger to whitewash his past and yeah. going along with it, instead, which is what they they do by giving you know candy to Bush at funerals and whatnot, but. This is a really glaring example of like you're helping a right winger whitewash his yeah. monstrous past. That's right. Yeah, and there's this it. amazing thing because they're they're so you know, I wrestle with all the time because I like like most people have some of my friends don't share my exact political views. Um, 
But I think there's a difference between me hanging out with people in the privacy of my home and me going out in the world and working with them to clean up their relation or their, their, their public relations and um, to promote their message. And it's, yeah, there is that, you know, it's bad enough watching W uh, rewrite history uh, in front of a camera, which is effective enough. I mean, I will tell you this, you know, I'll I'll save you hours of listening to the thing. He's really, by the end of it, if you forget your history, you're like, I, I finally felt it. I don't remember, I'd have a beer with that guy. And yeah. then I remember who he ran against. And I'm like, yeah, I'd much rather have a beer with that guy than any of those clowns. But, you know, then sure. you forget all the, you know, you have taken into account like the wars and the bodies. And Katrina. The stolen and elections and the Katrina and the. That guy's body know. count is insane. Yeah. yeah but dude. now we're going to the next level where you've got Carl Rove, uh, the guy who arguably helped create W. And he's not just looking into a camera and whitewashing himself. He's got a Democrat there helping him do it. And um, it's 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 astonishing, and it really it it really uh, for me just hits how utterly disconnected these people are from the consequences of what they do. Yeah, I, I was gonna say they don't see it that way. I mean, they are of the same society of sorts. So yeah. even though they represent, and I'm air quoting, two different ideological spectrums, allegedly. These yeah. folks, whether it's Carl Rove or David Axelrod or whether it's uh, Clinton or W, they occupy the same space. They breathe the same rare air. They are in the same networks and circles. Their kids go to the same schools. Hell, their kids are yeah. friends. So yeah. we're the ones that are, you know, for those of us who are not in that rare air, we're sitting here stunned. Yeah. But mm-hmm. we shouldn't be. Because these people are in each other's circle and they are they are in each other's world. And so that's why for Axelrod to do that with Rove, it seems natural because it is natural. This is how they roll. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've said this before. I think that, that, you know, in our business, it's perfectly natural for somebody who works on, you know, Warner Brothers superhero movies to have friends who work for Marvel superhero movies and even go back and forth and it's all fine. But the impact of that on human lives is not quite the same. And it's just really when these people are out there crafting messages, especially, you know, the midterms we just went through where it's like, this is going to be the most important election of your lifetime and lives are on the line. You're like, some of that's true. How is it that you're able to go out and say that stuff and then go off and have dinner with the people you're warning me are going to destroy democracy? Cause they don't believe that. that. They don't believe yeah. it. Josh, I don't know what happens between Marvel and uh, that's some life altering stuff. I got, to, I, I got to rise up and disagree with you on that. <laughs> Do you feel betrayed when uh, James Gunn stopped doing Marvel movies and started doing DC movies? I know a lot of people. That's that. right. Terribly betrayed. That's real life right there. <laughs> Terribly. Well, b- before we get in, I want to get one. We got a, a note from somebody about our last thing. And I think it ties into this because we talked a bit in the last show about the very special friendship between uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia. And it was, again, it was that thing where it was like they're disconnected from, you know, the, the policies they push forward. They, they, they don't connect to who these people are. But this person wrote in and it was a piece from. Uh, the Chicago Maroon, which is the official newspaper of the University of Chicago from a few years ago. And it's like, as we kind of knew, it's like Scalia's problem wasn't just that he promoted bad laws that hurt people. Um, Here it is. 
uh, in his personal life, uh, professional life, is pretty awful too. Several University of Chicago law school graduates accused former law professor and Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia of racist treatment toward his black students. In a statement, the university said it was saddened by the allegations but could not determine the truth of them. A student wrote on Facebook, Scalia flunked every black student who took his classes that year. Nobody flunks courses in elite law schools. It's unheard of. While I was there, Scalia was added as a blatant racist to the extent that the Black American Law Students Association chapter at the law school brought it to the attention of the acting dean in several meetings. And this was corroborated by other students. And yeah, this is not like high school French class. To get into these classes, you are brilliant. You are the cream of the crop. You don't fail. That doesn't happen. That's right. And it's just and for people who've never went to not only elite uh, law schools. I mean, if you make it to graduate school, the entire goal of your professors is to help you make it over the finish line. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They don't want you to fail. They're gonna do everything they can. That's right. So, oh my God, that is absolutely stunning. I think what we're getting at is that there has to be some nexus between not just the work that the person does, and in this case, Scalia putting on that robe, but also what are they like in in real life? Now, him putting on the robe is also real life, but real in the personal on the personal side as well. Or in this case, he was a law professor. That was the professional side as well. But if I had a friend that did something like this, we would have to have a coming to Jesus meeting. Yeah, we're gonna decide whether or not we're gonna still be friends. Cause see, now yes. this ain't just a policy disagreement anymore. Exactly right. <clears throat> exactly right. Um, yeah. Wow. So maybe that's, that's maybe that's why maybe that's why Ginsburg and Scalia were friendly because she only, I believe, had one black clerk her entire time as a Supreme Court justice, and also her criticism of oh yeah, Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick. Uh, also, yes. relatively grotesque. I mean, yeah. you know these these. They flock together, these people, for a reason. Yeah, they do. And we ignore, I mean, because we want to put them on pedestals. Uh, For the right, it's Scalia. For the left, it is definitely uh, Ginsburg. And we ignore that these people are flawed as hell, just like any other human being. Yeah. Yeah. We we Uh, also don't don't want to acknowledge the fact that our Supreme Court is a disaster and it's basically a, a white supremacist institution since its beginning. That's why From it exists. The beginning. And, and so we, we can't comprehend the fact that bad people can, uh, can elevate themselves to those places, even though they have just over and over and over again. Oh, you're right. And I mean, I got to throw in there, Minister Malcolm X and Dr. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. warned us about white liberals. Mm-hmm. And they're not the only ones. They're certainly the most prominent ones. But when I think about what they had to say and how they critiqued white liberals and how especially Minister Malcolm X would talk about the difference between the fox and the wolf. Right. And basically saying, hey, I'd rather deal with the wolf because I know where they're coming from. So when you have people like a Ginsburg, who certainly has done some great things in her career, that's not what we're, we're not sure. arguing that she didn't. But the bottom line is that when you are in positions of power like that and you only have one black clerk your entire career, or if you're a college, you know, a law professor, you fell in all the black students, you have a problem, sir and ma'am, and you're not yes. much better than George W. Bush or even Donald Trump, for that matter, sir and ma'am. And as much as the left would hate, I mean, the neoliberal left would hate to admit it, those are the facts. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it, it gets increasingly absurd as we get through things like, especially the Biden administration where, you know, it, it, I, I've really never experienced it to this degree where it just feels like everybody in those camps in the hardcore Democratic camp and the hardcore Republican camp are just go back to Marvel and DC. They're just fans. They're literally just fans. And, and they will overlook anything uh, on, on, on their side and condemn everything on the other. And right. um, it, it's bonkers. I, I, when Paul Pelosi got attacked in his house and I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm supposed to get worked up over the fact that this guy got attacked in his house. But first of all, how can we never talk about the incredible violence that being basically an inside trader does to countless people, all the machinations he's involved with? Uh, create poverty, create crime, create physical harm to people. Nobody cares about that. And and then the fact that the Democrats pumped all this money into these right-wing campaigns uh, during the primaries, which even if everybody lost, I believe they did, you're still sending that message out. And so here you've got a guy who's been driven crazy by right-wing propaganda attacking this guy. And I didn't expect everybody in the world to come out and just go either who cares or laugh but honest to God, I genuinely believe that if he had died in that attack, he would now be considered by those same Democrats the way they think of Martin Luther King. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's like he would have been a martyr. Yeah. Yeah. I, I So that 43 million, let me touch that first. You're absolutely right. Yeah. The Democrats propped up the worst of the worst Republicans in their primary so that their neoliberal chosen candidates could have an easier time, at least in their mind, $43 million. Meanwhile, in Georgia, you got mm-hmm. Senator Reverend Warnock fighting for his life, which he should not be fighting for his life, and had these geniuses spent that money uh, shoring, up, shoring him up and also less time attacking freedom-fighting progressives, we might be in a better place. And so I'm going to push back a little bit on what happened to Pelosi, and I hear you. I, you know, I covered it a couple of times on my show. And the reason why I did it is because, you know, for me being a public figure, people disagree with me all the time. I am a lightning rod. There's no in between with Nina Turner. Either you love me or you hate me. And that could have been me for somebody that disagreed with me or, or, or another politician that I admire, you know, somebody in the public space that I admire. That's the only reason why I covered it. Other than that, the point that you're making is a true point. Like both of these things can be true at the same time that we don't want people going to physically attack people because they don't agree with their views at the same time. I hear what you're saying. I mean, we cry a river for the most privileged people and no way in the hell could Paul Pelosi and thank God he didn't die. But I hear what you're saying. Uh, could ever be in the, on the same level as a Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But but you're right when you talk about fans and the worship, like the hero worship that both sides have for their chosen uh, candidates, is it's just bizarre to me. And yeah. they want to talk about Donald Trump having a cult. The cult of personality yeah. is all yeah. up in politics, whether you lean in blue or lean in red. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. Well, well, shall we? Shall we? Shall we get into this? Uh, this fun? This? Yeah. Um... I thought we were into it already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we're going we're to get into class. This has just been the like, hey, how are you? Let's get comfortable. Um, so, yeah, it really is. David Axelrod, uh, who ran Obama's campaign, and Carl Rove, who needs no introduction. I, if you're listening to this and you don't know who these guys are, you're probably on the wrong podcast. But let's let like right off the bat. I thought the differences were really marked because um, uh, Rove just walks in, sits down the front of the camera and he looks like he's eating somebody else's lunch. And David Axelrod looked like he lost a bet. 
he just looks uncomfortable and squirmy. And I, 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 Carl Rove has a presence. Uh, yeah. I think we can. I think we can. You know, say that like he has, he has a presence, and Axelrod has no presence whatsoever. He's yeah. Uh, and let's play a little of their introduction so you kind of get a sense of the difference of them. Very few people can think back to the exact moment when something happened that would inspire their entire career, their entire life. And mine happened when I was five years old. October 27th, 1960, John F. Kennedy was campaigning for president in New York City that day. He made 10 stops. And one of them was in the little housing development where I lived, Stuyvesant Town. And this very charismatic, young, dynamic guy jumped up on this makeshift platform and started speaking and his voice was booming off the buildings and people just paid rapt attention to him. And even though I couldn't intuit exactly what was happening or understand exactly what was happening, it just seemed very important and very vital uh, to me. And, and honestly, I was from that moment hooked. And then, uh, and then here's Carl Rove. I'd always been interested in politics. As long as I can remember, I've had a love of history and government. The fifth grade, when we all had our first civics class, and we all had to write a paper, and we wrote it about, you know, the three branches of government or the Declaration of Independence, I wrote mine on the theory of dialectical materialism. <laughs> uh, this guy, <laughs> Mark, sounded to me like a really bad actor. So I've always been interested in politics in my life at that point, but that sort of made it, uh, I wanted to be part of that. Boy, that that really says that's really just I mean, it just boils down the difference between Republicans, Democrats right there. It's just like I saw a show and then I want to be part of that show. And the other guy's like, man, I did a lot of thinking and I want to fucking destroy the left. <laughs> Dialectical material. Woo. That's going deep in the fifth grade, baby. <laughs> but it is it's such a difference and it's also like i'm sorry even if it's true and i'll give him he's the right age and it probably happened but at a certain point you're sitting down and it's like you gotta go oh my god i'm just about to spout a cliche i gotta come up with another story because yeah. i saw jfk is like it's a little bit you gotta come up with <laughs> you're a it's a of course you saw jfk yeah it, thank you yeah the five-year-old but I mean, that's, you know, that that's like my kids saying I I played I played baseball. I hit a triple when I was five and then I was like, I'm going to be a baseball player. Well, yeah, there's a lot of stuff you do when you're five. Like it, it's just such a crazy thing to hold on to. And it just to me, it sounds like, oh, so you just kind of fell into stuff after that. Like it just kind of went that way because it's just not how, <laughs> like it's just not how things work. He had he had to come up with a. He, they, they sat him down. They go, "When did you decide you want to be a, a campaign manager and you know get in politics?" And he couldn't think of anything. He's like, "I, yeah. I just fell into it." I so JFK. he came up he with. Made a, me, he made me feel. I saw something that made me feel something. Yeah, that's not how it works at all. Yeah. Also, what about helping? Whatever. <laughs> not at five years old. I mean, I don't know yeah. if I. Anyway, but it's his story, <laughs> so I'm not going. Are you? No, that's a really good story? point. I didn't even think of that. I was just so okay. taken by the the Kennedy at all. But imagine being five years old and seeing Kennedy, who you know, granted, better than a lot of those guys, but still a boring old guy talking. I mean, politicians are yeah. not. All due respect, and with some exceptions, and we're looking at one, are pretty goddamn boring speakers. Even even the good ones. I mean, I yes. went through the entire Clinton administration with people going, "Oh my god, he's amazing. He just owns a crowd." And I'm going. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I as someone who was who who 
became what he wanted to be when he was five years old. I, I like I that's literally happened to me. I, I have never wanted to be anything else. Like I became what I wanted to be. But I never had a moment like it was still over. I was like, this is what I want to be. But it was still over years of watching it and seeing people be comedians and doing all the stuff that I I became it. There is no one moment. There is no like I sat down and saw Johnny Carson and he was making people laugh like I'd never seen it before on TV. And I thought, man, I want to be like Johnny Carson. I want to be in this. But that's not how it works. It's just not a thing. Unless you're David Axelrod, Carl Rose. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll push back a little bit. There, there are plenty of people of a certain age who saw, you know, either Elvis or the Beatles on on uh, on uh, Ed Sullivan, and were like, "That's it. That's what I'm doing." And that was that. Might, but again, at five, watching JFK, I'm sorry. I want to know see, what what speech did you see him give that hit you at five? That <laughs> electrified. You know what? Five year olds love politicians. That's the thing that everybody knows. <laughs> yeah. Of course they do. Because what 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 five year old isn't just just want to hear uh, a speech on economics? Like they're just into it. <laughs> Dialectic materialism. Uh, now we're talking. Now we're talking though. In the fifth and then Rose is just. Yeah, and Rose like I see a way where I can fuck stuff up. Yes. And then they get into this thing, and this is tough because it. I, I wanted to play a funny clip, but I thought this is a little too serious and I won't, but they talk about how they became friends and Axelrod is reading Carl Rove's book and he realizes they have this one thing in common that Carl Rove's mother committed suicide and David Axelrod's father committed suicide and they reach out together. And part of me almost wanted to play that clip from that terrible Batman Superman film. Do you remember where like yeah. Superman's about to kill Batman and then he says Martha and he, they both realize their mothers were named Martha. And it's like, yeah. I didn't want to, trivialize what they went through as human beings at the same time i think they do that themselves i think that's that doesn't i well okay let me say this i'm from an abusive alcoholic father background you know i've been very open about that he's talking about himself dave is an abusive right yes uh, I do. N- I have never felt the need it, in my life. I never felt the need to reach out to John Wayne Gacy <laughs> because he also had an abusive alcoholic father. There are people that I don't actually need to talk to because they also had abusive alcoholic fathers because they're bad people. And Carl Rove is a terrible, terrible human being. So yeah, I'm glad. It's cool you had a connection. But if, like, I am, am reading a news story and they're like, Charles Manson had an alcoholic mom, I'm not like, oh, I, I, I have a connection with him. No, he's a bad person. These are bad people. And, yes, I am comparing Carl Rove to John Wayne Gacy and uh, Charles Manson. You are correct. Yeah, but their, their body count's way smaller than his. Oh, yes, way smaller. Way smaller. Um, so are you saying that you wouldn't do a master class with those folks? <laughs> yeah, I think I wouldn't. <laughs> I would do a master class with Manson under certain conditions. I mean, it would be interesting. It would be interesting. It would sell a lot. But I wouldn't hang out with him afterwards. That's right. Uh, <laughs> well, in, in order to do a master class together, you know, you got to come up with this. I mean, as human beings, we're we're incredibly skilled at being able to create the world 
as we want it to be in our minds. And that's what it took for those two to do this masterclass together. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put them together like this. Yeah. Yeah, I think they had to come up with a narrative that puts them in the same room, right? That's it. And and it's it's the same thing as like when someone's given the State of the Union and they go, oh, and, and Jeff... Merker's up there. He went through this tough thing. It's like they're trying to humanize it. They're trying to make yeah. it like seem real to people. Like you know, you you have a friend who has problems, and that's how you met them. But I don't. I don't. I didn't buy it when I heard it. I just thought it. Was oh, I, I I do, and I think it goes to what's in you do buy it. It's like they yeah, because they don't. I think, yeah, it, it doesn't mean anything to them, and they look at each other as like, hey, we're in the same business, and we're always up against each other, and. And then you read this thing and it's like, you know, it's like if I read about some other screenwriter and I was like, oh, my God, he's got the same experience I've got. And then in some way and, you know, I'd be like, hey, man, I, let's, let's I, talk about this. I think they were friends that Before had nothing that? to do with that story and they didn't want to tell people flat out. We are so, friends because we're both campaign managers for presidents and we run in the uh, same circles. Well, I think what's that's interesting, though, the reality because yeah, where, where it gets to the problem. That. Yeah. Where it gets the problem with all this stuff is uh, when they're talking about it, Rove brings up a really important point and illustrates it, actually. He tells how um, Axelrod sent him this thing uh, that he'd written. And it was a beautiful tribute to his father, who was a healthcare professional, mental healthcare professional, but somehow or another couldn't find it, uh, couldn't find it within him to ask for help for himself. So there he is having sympathy for a guy who was not able to get the mental health that he required. He's, he feels pain for this. He's expressing pain. His father's he's like, can we talk about the massive cuts to the healthcare system, especially to, to mental health, specifically under George W. Bush working with Karl Rove? Like, I mean, this is another thing. And understand, that's why Karl Rove got into this business. You know, he brought up Marx for a reason. He wants to destroy that stuff. Like that's why he got into this business is to take away material needs of people, to take away the healthcare of people. That's what he's doing. And, and the callousness of, of just not making the connection to that larger, just what you were talking that the, the larger uh, impacts that the types of policies that he helped to push and champion yeah. and also create. Like these folks, some of far too many of them, I won't say 100% of them, but far too many of them are disconnected from the real realities of everyday people. So that's why they could just cavalierly tell these stories and try to make it seem like um, they have some type of heart and compassion where the bottom line is when you look at their body of work, being in some of the most powerful positions in the world does not show that same compassion uh, for yeah. everyday people in this country. It just doesn't. Something. It's also you know, it's a quote, lot easier. The, I was just going to say to quote one of my dear friends, Andrew Yang, the math ain't math. The, the, yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's a lot easier to feel compassion for somebody that you can actually see somebody who's in your world, somebody you're on That's a first name exactly basis right. with than it is for, you know, and, um, uh, they're great. I remember when I think it was the first Bush, um, you know, he would get, he was getting criticized for his terrible, uh, treatment or lack thereof, uh, the AIDS crisis. And somebody pointed mm-hmm. out that, um, yep. uh, he had a friend whose son was dying with a- of AIDS and he made a point of spending like, you know, an hour with him every day or something and playing band, whatever it is, he'd go visit him and talk to him and he was heartbroken when the kid died. And you're like, yeah. And so how does that impact the hundreds of thousands of people that he doesn't know who are dying? Mm-hmm. Like how do, that doesn't make up for what he's doing to them. Oh, he's no. good. He cares about AIDS. No, he cares about his friend. 
his friend, right? And, which uh, is normal. Yeah. When yeah. you have that kind of power, you also have an enormous responsibility. Yeah. Not to just be sitting up here in a master class making shit up as you go. Exactly. No, I mean, I, you know, Dave and I feel it. We're under constant pressure to be friends with the Pod Save America guys, and we just can't do it. It's just wrong. I mean, they're lovable and they're really nice, but we do. I'm kidding. They've never <clears throat> actually. They hate you, don't they, Dave? I think they hate Dave. Um, they used to. They used to not hate me. They had me on one of their podcasts. Um, at, at one point, while they were talking about Russia, I, I, it was live at the Improv, and I, I said, "Hey guys, nobody cares about this." And they, and they all and it got really quiet, and I said. <laughs> They care about jobs and having being able to keep their houses and their cars and their kids going to school. And and John was like, that's it. That's a good point. But the whole audience was very upset that I said that. Those are incredibly racist and sexist things to say, Dave. And you should be careful saying them. Hey there, it's David Sirota, host of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from the award-winning investigative news outlet, The Lever. In politics, there's a complex web of money, influence, and greed that corrupts our democracy. Lever Time is an unflinching examination of the latest news, events, and issues that often go unrecognized and unreported by corporate media. We interview a variety of guests and experts across media and politics, and we hold the powerful accountable. Some recent interviews include Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, comedian David Cross, progressive leader Nina Turner, and artificial intelligence expert Dr. Max Tegmark. So if you're looking for a true independent voice in political media, check out Levertime. Go to levertimepod.com or search Levertime on your podcast player to subscribe. Um, but here, let, let's sum up their friendship, though, because this is interesting. And Axelrod gets to the whole thing about their relationship that's so weird. We just sort of clicked. And, you know, people find it strange that a Republican and a Democrat like us, you know, somebody who's been, you know, partisan and has played at the sort of the same level of presidential campaigns can somehow be friends. I think it's sort of weird that people think that it's odd. Even though I think his, uh, his ideas are generally wrong about where we should go, um, I also recognize that that's, that's the great thing about democracy. We can have a contest of ideas and contend around ideas and still respect each other as people who are in the arena and have a passion for the larger project of democracy. <sighs> I mean, that's probably true on some levels. I, I got to give them, them this one. I, I, I think it can be true. Yeah, but don't you think levels. that if, if at a certain point, though, if what you're doing, I mean, I think it's one thing to have disagreements about policies to get to the same place. And even then, I mean, that's that's the whole liberal thing. It's been, I'm sure, driven you crazier than driven me because you deal with it way more than, than we, we dabble. But that, oh, no, 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 I agree with your goals. I just don't agree with how to get there. Like, that's bad enough. But this is somebody whose goal is, you know, to, I mean, Karl Rove's ultimate goals are not, one would hope, the same as David Axelrod's. And he's very effective at working towards them. And the idea of, like, of going, yeah, you should be friends with that guy anyway. But when the goals yeah. of somebody like Karl Rove does not necessarily impact, in other words, the goals, as, as despicable as they are and were of Karl Rove, Rove have no impact on David Axelrod, and I again right. I believe that when you're when you when you ascend to a certain level in your career in this life, it's 
you're you're unimpacted by it. So maybe maybe Axelrod and others like him don't think about it because for them, it really doesn't matter what Rove does. He's going to be all right. David Axelrod is going to be all right. And so you can separate the two things. And that's why I'm saying I, I think it was like legitimate what they were saying. We just clicked. Maybe they yeah. do click. Because yeah, they no, I, I do fired and Carl Rove is raining down. David Axelrod and his family will not be impacted one iota. Yeah, because he doesn't go after that David Axelrod to the world. He goes after That's people it. who works. And also, you know, I had forgotten this because one of the things that kicked this off was months ago. Do you remember when, uh, wasn't, what was the Axelrod medical? He he just suddenly realized that his medical insurance uh, had oh, changed yeah. and some yeah. something was going. And it was like that. this amazing thing where like David Axelrod was suddenly being impacted by terrible policies and going, oh my gosh, how do people, how do people live like this? Yeah, yeah. I remember you know that because he tweeted it if out. Brad, he tweeted yeah. it out. Yeah, something, something about yeah. his like, wow, it's like, yeah, some some medicine medication that he requires was going to go up massively. And he's like, I'm all right. I can afford it. But wow, what about people who can't? I mean, this is, I'm like, you know what? If Brad Pitt says something like that, I go, what a ding dong. I'm still going to go see a Brad Pitt movie. You're in politics. I am too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how, how, how are you, how are you able to? How is he able to just write that tweet and send it out and not realize how it looks, let alone what it means? It's called oblivious. Uh, Josh, I want to get back to the most important statement you made. Yes, we are still yes. going to go see a Brad Pitt movie. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> if, Brad, if Brad don't get it, it's all right, baby. We'll help him through That's right. it. We're going to see the That's movie. right. Listen, we don't go Look, see we, Brad Pitt, uh, do we? <laughs> we love Brad shirt. Pitt. <laughs> we love Brad Pitt because Brad Pitt has publicly said that uh, I am one of his... Uh, favorite TV comedy actors. Okay. Are you really? Yeah. You know, Publicly. I can see his house right there at my window. Well, we should <laughs> go over houses. there. I should, we should, I should pop there. my head over the fence and go, Brad, it's me. Three it's days. me. Your favorite. Me. <laughs> Your favorite. Your favorite. Your <laughs> favorite. But they, they sum up their introduction now. This is fun by talking about why they're doing this. So no. one of the things I, I want to do is I want people to understand what goes on in a campaign because if they understand how hard it is to run for office, I don't care whether it's for city council or state legislature or Congress or statewide office or the presidency, if they understand how difficult it is and how winning candidates have to prepare themselves, educate themselves and, and show a lot of discipline, I think people would end up at the end of the day having a great, having more confidence in the system itself. So in other words, if they knew how hard it was to, to be a candidate, they would have more respect for politicians. Yeah, yeah. And Isn't more right? confidence in the system. <laughs> One of these two things don't belong. You know, I learned that on Sesame Street. It's real simple. Because, no, sir, no. That does not make one. And that's not to say, yes, people who run for office do work incredibly hard. Some people work harder than others. But if you are well connected, baby, that money is just going to pour in. But how he connects understanding what goes on in the campaign and how the candidate prepares and educates themselves and is disciplined with the person that's learning this, having more confidence in the system. No, sir. Those two things don't go together. At all. Do, uh, do you think, do you think, I think they're lying to themselves and they believe this. I, I Like, I don't think they're, they're bullshitting here. I think that they truly believe that's real. You know, they think they're, do- at least, at least not Rove. <laughs> Let me just say that. 
but uh, I think I think he believes that you know this is this is what it is. I'm doing some amazing moral thing to help people believe in democracy. I think they truly believe this garbage. Yeah, just liberal, that, that the notion liberal that that again, not to take away from the work that is done. Um, in fact, I, I know that one of the reasons I'm well, I shouldn't I wouldn't even say this publicly. No, the reason I, the reason I do what I do is I'm fundamentally lazy. But you know, yeah. The, the yeah, you you work hard in all these various, but it doesn't matter. What matters is the results. It's like I can appreciate the fact that you work hard, but if what you deliver is terrible, I don't care. You know, yeah. if a great politician shows up and is able to just roll out of bed and do good things, I don't care how prepared they are. I don't care how much work they've done. Right. It's not about that. It's not a character test. It's not any. It's just like, what are you, what are you doing for the people? That's right. And he's divorcing himself from the actions of that administration and his role in it. And it is. Yeah. We're, we're talking about whitewashing. I mean, they are really just trying to explain away all the bad deeds that Karl Rove led. Yeah, yeah. Talk I mean, about just this, in the Bush administration. This, yeah, discipline and prepare and educate and more confidence in the system. Hell no. What would give people more confidence in the system is if the system worked for them yeah, and who yeah. they loved. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, you could work less hard. You could go to fewer meetings <laughs> with top dollar donors and actually like sleep in a few days maybe. And That's right. Know, That's it. It's, so uh, they, they get going now. They, they get into it and they had to start a campaign. And I got to say, from watching this, I feel like unlike the W thing where I didn't learn a single solitary thing about leadership, and I certainly am no more resilient than I was going into the Hillary Clinton thing. I do actually feel at the end of this that, that I know a few things about it. I doubt I could run a campaign, but you sit there, especially when it's Rove, and you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, they get into it. And uh, let's let's um, they started talking about uh, how when you first start up, you have to think about the voters who are in play. Obviously, there are voters who are always going to go this way and voters who are always going to go that way. And winning the election is about getting the voters who are in play. So first up, it's it's Mr. Axelrod. If you're a campaign, uh, you have to present a coherent argument so that you control the sort of choice that people have in their heads on election day. These are battles of definition. And you're trying to define what the choice is all about. And that's a process that begins at the beginning of the campaign. And if it's a good campaign, you're not going to vary much from uh, that fundamental judgment about what the choice is that you want voters to focus on. Because if they focus on your opponent's view of what the choice is all about, likely you're not going to win that election. And, and now, Karl Rove. In a campaign, if you had to pick one thing that was critical to success, it was whether or not the candidate had an idea about why they were running that made sense and seemed relevant to the voters. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's that message expressed in all the ways that we can express a message in a campaign, from the candidate's remarks to social media to ads to you name it, that ultimately is what's important to the voters. Why are you running? And do you seem to have, is that seem to be real? And is it important and relevant to me? And then I can judge it against whatever's being offered is the reason of your opponent and, and make a decision. And, but that one thing is, why are you running? And a candidate who knows why they're running is better than a candidate who's, who wants to be something rather than to do something. I mean, that seems nuts and bolts. But you, I'm looking at an expert here. Dave and I don't know what the hell we're talking about. I mean, I can't necessarily under, uh, take exception to 
the words that they said about the fundamentals of running a campaign, being a candidate, being a part of the campaign. But again, what they're saying is really disconnected from the real lives of the people who do truly need to know whether or not the person running gives a damn about them and their family. Like they're all up here in, 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 um, in places and yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly where they are. So yeah, it's true that, you know, coherent argument. Okay. Check. They're talking about this in a very academic way when the average person on the street just needs it to, needs to know simply, do you care about, do you care whether or not I have a job? Do you care whether or not I can afford my groceries? Do you care whether or not I live in a safe community or not? It really is just as simple as that. It's not complicated. And, and the why, yeah, many candidates know why they're running, and a lot of them are selling a, a bunch of crap to the voters, knowing good and well when they get the power and they get the seat, they're not going to do any of that stuff. So this is yeah, all I academic. Mean, Joe, yeah, right. Joe Manchin is a coal guy who just wanted to further his coal empire and make more coal money. But, you know, they talk about different stuff. So he knows why he's running. That's right. He, to Carl Rove's point, he, he's doing it to to further his, his economic interests. But that doesn't really fall into what Rove was saying here, which it doesn't translate to the voters. Then you just lie to the voters. That's exactly right. You just lie well, that, to And them. that's interesting. That's a really good point because, you know, clearly what he's really saying is you as a candidate, the image you need to portray to the world is that I know why I'm running. Yes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and he is, I, I would argue he's correct. Um, but you're right also. And as I'm listening to that, I'm like, yeah, but they're not going to, half of them aren't going to tell you the truth. No. And he's not going to talk about that. Neither of these guys are going to talk about what do you do when your candidate isn't what they appear to be, and how do you how do you gloss over that? Which sounds Machiavellian, but there's going to be plenty of I think halfway decent politicians who you have to do that with too. You have to come up with some sort of message for someone because candidate A is at least you know competent and has a few good ideas. He just doesn't have any message, and it's way better than candidate B. And we have to come up with a way to make it sound like candidate A. Yeah, I mean, definitely from a tactical or practical perspective, yeah, when a candidate is out in front of people, they do have to be able to tell their why. But deep down, I mean, if that why doesn't match, if that why does not match the what, what it's going to take to really lift the people that they're running for, or if you've been a person, I mean, Dave, you gave the example of, of a mansion. No way in the hell Manchin is going to go out there and tell the people in West Virginia, I'm just going to answer my own uh, to my owner donors every mm-hmm. time. And not just him. Hell, we can name them all. That really, when you yeah. elect me, I just want you to know I am bought and sold. I mean, the same thing happened in my race. It happens in races all the time where you have the one candidate. Yeah, my message is right. My fight is right. You look at my record. You know, I will fight for the people. I will not just sit back and let my party do anything to people and say and then you got this other candidate that talks a good game, but and then once they win, you see very clearly that they will answer to the powers that be, and whether that is the owner donors or the neoliberals that control them, that help them get into office. So candidates can have all kinds of flowery ideas about what they're actually planning to do. And then once they get there, you're going to find out whether or not they got a spine, whether or not they have a backbone whether or not they're going to stand up against a system that is harming the 98%. And unfortunately, most of the time, these people get co-opted. If they had a conscience to begin with, because some of these fools don't have a conscience going in. Yeah. 
Yeah. But there's, there's something to consistency. I don't know. I was just thinking about, God, you know, the, the talk about a confused message. I never knew what, what Hillary's message was in 2016 beyond she's qualified. And neither did and she. Doesn't, and that, and that which we're didn't mean her, anything. That's right. It doesn't mean anything. I don't care that you're, I don't care that you have a nice resume. It doesn't mean anything. Um, you know, Hitler had a nice resume. He had a lot of jobs before he became chancellor. The, yeah. um, but it was that thing where there was actual, uh, Bernie got derided. And I think I've seen some of this pointed at you too, where it's like, oh my God, there he goes again. Same. He keeps saying the same thing. You're like, yeah, because that's yeah. who he is. That's why he's running. That's what the whole point is. And you know what? The, <laughs> the, the people who aren't predisposed to hate that are hearing it. They're like, oh, hey, you know what I like about that guy? He's been saying the same goddamn thing for 30 years. I think he might actually believe it. Here's same why it didn't you. count. Yeah. yeah, it's like I, I didn't I didn't see you when, when you know the last time you were running I didn't see you coming up with a different message. You're like we know who you are, we know where you stand, and and you know that that does matter. But I think from their point of view, it's about how do you make it someone appear to to have a, a consistency and a and a you know care That's about exactly something. Exactly. I doubt either of these guys have ever worked with a candidate who actually is genuinely committed to serving the people. Yes. Um, yeah, which is funny uh, because Roe Ro was almost describing Obama because Obama knew that message he wanted to say. I mean, that change, change, change was that sort of one note thing Bernie had. Yeah, because that's what they decided he was going to say. The difference is Bernie believed he actually wanted to make change, whereas Obama just wanted to say change. But in a way, that's like. Well, that's point. That was a that consistent. Candidate. That was a consistent message, and it was a simple one that got through to people. Um, yeah, because they clearly, wanted I mean, change. It turns out. At the yeah, time, right? <laughs> shocking. That's uh, right. Shocking. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll I'll say it. You know, it's like they they wanted change so much that in America elected a black man president. I mean, that was an effective message. I would that was not something that we all saw coming at that point. I would say that was not a gimme in two thousand eight. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the frustrating things about it is like you actually had a message that resonated with enough people to get past one of our fundamental failings as a country that we he, enough people that, that people came out for that. And shit, you didn't mean it. He squandered one of the greatest opportunities in American history. Flat out. It's, yeah, it's very no depressing. Um, but created a ton of socialists. So that is true. That is well true. done. Uh, so then they get into what to do when you're attacked. And this goes to one of my problems with Democrats all the time, which is weird. I, are you still, I'm still in that place where it's like, I have been disconnected from the democratic party for a very long time. I was raised in the actual left. I, I checked out in, in the nineties. It was like, I'm done with these people, but there's still part of me. That's like, come on, you can do better. Just, just in terms of running. <laughs> You know, it makes me insane. I don't want to care somehow. But but this this gets to one of the things they do that makes me nuts. And I think the important thing is to respond within the context of your message. You want to bring it back to your terms. Again, these are battles of definition. What is the choice about? Uh, I've been in races where my candidate was uh, attacked on crime in, in, in ways that were, as you say, over the top. Um, and the conventional wisdom was, well, respond uh, in kind on the issue. The tact we chose was to actually uh, deal with the tenor of the spot and then say they'd rather talk about this 
pivot and, back to your and message. pivot back to the message. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really important. If you don't have that ballast, if you don't understand what your end of this, this the debate is, uh, then uh, you're going to be adrift when these yeah. moments come when you're under attack yeah. or there are unforeseen events. Now, I don't know when this campaign was that he's talking about, but right now we're sort of going through this thing and the, the Republicans always do it. They were they were beating the hell out of Democrats with crime, this, this go around. And one of the things that makes me crazy is that, yes, crime has gone up comparatively. Uh, certainly COVID's had something to do with that. There's all kinds of issues there. But we are at a stage now where crime is at the level that when it was at the same level back in the 90s, people were going, oh, my God, crime is disappearing. And Democrats just let Republicans frame these things. They just Demo Republicans go, crime's out of control. You're not safe in the streets. And instead of coming back and going, you're fucking lying. Democrats go, yeah, we got a, our way of addressing crime is better than uh, we got to know oh, these defund the police. People need to shut up and blah, blah, blah. It's like they never, they just let the Republican talking points slide. Yeah, they're not crazy. street fighters. I mean, what I would say to Republic, what the crime is, is giving tax breaks to, to, to corporations in this country and, and, and suffocating government. The crime is not expanding the child tax credit and throwing 50% of our children back into poverty. The crime is, you know, just name it. You want to talk, let's talk about crime. Yeah, let's have this talk. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm yes. up for it, baby. You know? And but by the way, no. it's way easier. I would think that that's something that that, that connects to people in a way it that's would. very real. Not because not everybody has been a victim of, especially violent crime, of a meaningful right. street crime. But but yeah. most people in this country have been a victim of economic crime. Of, of that's it. Of the it's just and and they just it's don't want to go near that. They also they also don't know how to do it in a way that isn't wonky and make make you go to sleep like you know with yes. bail reform it's just like bail reform it, it needs to happen because if we don't have it it creates more criminals because if you're taking people and arresting them and putting them in jail uh, and they're and they're in there because they can't pay bail then they have to drop out of school and they lose their job and that is the number right. one reason people become criminals because their lives are interrupted that's a very simple way to fucking put it and they cannot do it that way. They can't. They are incapable of making simple points. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why the Republicans always win on the messaging points, because they keep it simple, stupid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Simple, stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And again, not to go back to it, I think it's the sort of the, the defining trauma of our of our time. But um, uh, that particular election in 2016. But, you know, it was it was amazing to me to. Bernie Sanders was filling football stadiums before there was a frame of him on national TV while Hillary Clinton yeah. was struggling to fill high school auditoriums. That's right. Why do you think that is? Because, you know, I mean, her, like, go look at my website. Here's what I care. And there's Bernie saying his thing. And people were like, yes, this speaks to me. It speaks to me I enough gonna, that I'm going to go out on a cold night and sit in this, you know. I was going to say misogyny. You, you didn't let me answer your question. You said, "Why do you?" Think so, that you're is? right. God, I can't, I always forget that. I, <laughs> I forget that so often. It's like I. Oh God, yeah. We're like, oh no, not a woman. <clears throat> That's right. Yes. Yeah. Crazy, crazy, crazy old socialist. Senator Bernard Sanders was on the frequency of the people. Yes. Uh, yeah. And then the people. There, there Clinton, is... Clinton felt entitled. She was entitled yeah. to that position. That's right. See, there's a difference. 
Yeah, yeah. look, they they so knew she was going to run that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not retire. They knew she, it was a foregone conclusion in Washington, D.C. that she and that's not how you pick everything we're hearing here, even the lies of, of these two guys. Uh, that's not how you pick a candidate. And if you if you go against what the people want, if they're filling 10,000 seat arenas to see a, an old guy talk and you go against that, well, then you're going to get a right wing populist every goddamn time. There it is. That's history. That's just history. Yes. I said they created Donald J. Trump. I mean, don't forget, yeah. I mean, WikiLinks, as much as, you know, some decried WikiLinks, I mean, none of them ever came out and said the, the, the what they were putting out was, was, a, was a lie. And let us not right. forget that the Clinton campaign wanted Donald Trump elevated. They wanted yeah. her to run against him. And my grandmother used to say two things. One, be careful what you wish for. Two, don't write a check you behind can't cash. But she used to say, don't write a check your ass can't cash. That was the exact quote. <laughs> and that's what happened in 2016. As yep. did the media. I've I've told this story before, but um, I met an MSNBC producer during the primaries, and I said, "What are you guys doing with Trump? I mean, what do you, why are you putting him on the screen all the time?" And he said, "Quote: We are building Trump up during the primaries, so he'll win, and then we're going to take him down in the general." That is an MSNBC producer to me. That didn't work. Uh, yeah, they were delusional as hell. Yep. Uh, so now we get into assessing your own candidate. First thing you have to do uh, to develop a message is gather as much information as you can. Really understand who your candidate is, their biography, their record, um, what makes them tick, what's important to them, uh, what they've done with their lives. Um, and you need to know the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's particularly important, in my view, uh, to know what their struggles have been because everybody has struggles in their lives, and those struggles define us. Barack Obama lost his mother at 53 to cancer, and she had a horrendous time with her in insurance uh, company at the time of her illness. That really motivated him on the issue of health care. So when he talked about health care, and we did an ad about this, he very much was thinking about uh, his mother. And that's how we got the Affordable Care Act. So next up. Uh, yeah, that's how we, we let the insurance companies totally dominate everything. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. He wanted more insurance. Oh, my God. You both took oh the words God. out of my mouth. And I, I mean, that was a touching story. Right. Like we yeah. can't argue that that was not yes. a touching story. Yes. But what came out of that is nothing near. I mean, the story was more touching than the policy that was put yeah. forward. Mm -hmm. And then assessing your candidate, the good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, that's just that's elementary. I mean, he's not telling us nothing that you don't. I mean, you absolutely got to assess your your candidate. There's no doubt about that, because you got to be able to get out there and tell their story before the other side does, especially on the bad and the ugly side of it you want to i mean it was robin roberts in, in a book that she wrote she said make your mess your message in politics you want to be the one to put your mess out there first so that you take the the steam out of your uh, competition for doing it for you so that's you know i don't see anything wrong with that but yeah that part about that insurance company stuff give me a break i mean health care yeah. then why didn't we get universal health care yeah, yeah. it's his mother 
Yes. It's his mother. Exactly right. Just, yeah. Crazy. This stuff so is he, he goes all, uh, Yeah. yeah. Um, and he goes on and on and on, and he's all kinds of vague, and, and then he gets to this. Here's, here's something. You're never going to hear Rove say the opposite of this. I think the, the elements of a strong message are, um, are you know, combined bio, record, and some projective language about where you want to go. And uh, what you want is for it to be authentic, relevant, and connecting. If it's not authentic, people aren't going to, aren't going to accept it. If it's not relevant, they may accept what you're saying, but it's not going to motivate them to vote for you. And it's important to be connecting so that you're speaking to them, uh, that they feel themselves uh, in that message. I guess one last element I would add is most good messages are inferentially contrastive. It projects those qualities that your candidate has that the opponent doesn't have. When Obama talked about change in the way that he talked about change, it was pretty clear, even though he never mentioned any of his opponents, that none of them really fit the bill. And, uh, you know, when Reagan talked about staying the course, maintaining uh, the progress and so on, it was pretty clear he was the only uh, answer. That, that is a that is a terrible description of what Reagan did. I, I can't even <laughs> begin to like, does he read books like the Reagan revolution was the right taking over the Republican Party permanently? That, that was that was what that was. That was him and his Phyllis Schlafly and all these other monsters taking that party and running it to the right. There was no, we're staying the course. That was not what that was. His whole campaign was about getting rid of taxes and, and, and taking, undermining everything that, that America was. That was the campaign. What the hell is he talking yeah. about? Do they even know the history of their own goddamn country? Like, this is the one thing you should know if you have this job. You should know what past people have done. I mean, ask the air traffic Reagan. controllers whether they felt like Reagan. Yeah. Was... <laughs> oh, I mean, come yeah. on. Let's talk about let's talk about crack. Let's talk about the, the flooding the inner cities with with people who are in mental homes. I mean, we knew what was happening then. Yes. We yeah. we know in retrospect what he did. Even even if you genuinely believe this stuff that he's saying about him, why are you working for the Democrats? You got you're not going to beat these people by lionizing their heroes. By trying to co-opt Reagan for yourself? What is wrong with you? How soon? And then, of course, I'm sitting here going, how many more years before they're doing this with Trump? Oh. You know what Trump did? <laughs> before I mean, or after Donald Trump is a con- Donald Trump Jr. is a consultant on MSNBC. That's my question. <laughs> but when you can divorce yourself from the impacts of said policies, it's very easy for David Axelrod to say what he's saying. And in some ways, yeah. I think we're at, we're asking too much of him. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the takeaway is uh, Senator Nina Turner uh, feels we're being very hard on David Axelrod. <clears throat> she's probably, you know what it is, Dave? She's, she's, uh, she wants to do one of them, their master classes with, uh, who would it be? Who would, I, I, who would, who would do a master class? Who would we, who would we team I, you who, up with? Who should just we pair blow? up with? <laughs> Because we know I'm with Charles Manson. I don't know. <laughs> you, 
You definitely found me out. I definitely want to do a masterclass. Robbie Mook. Robbie oh, yes. Mook. Good. Oh, oh Mook. yes. Oh, yeah. oh. I'm in. Perish the I'm thought. In. Okay. Perish the thought. <laughs> We got, we got, he'll, he'll, he'll be coming up later too. So don't, don't worry. Yes, plenty of he time will now. be. Oh my God. But, uh, I would not have a poke. It would not be the type of masterclass that they envision. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> it would be a masterclass. All right. But not steel, the one anymore. Yeah, steel cage masterclass. <laughs> I, I'm watching this, but it seems more like a master yelling at me than a master class. <laughs> I, 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 I did not know Miss Turner uh, knew Kung Fu. Uh, so here's a topic that um, I like to think at least one of us uh, on this episode will be able to um, have some insight on. Uh, I want to remind you for those listening, Dave, Dave and I, uh, straight white men. So for time immemorial, women have, have labored with some real disadvantages in politics. You know, the kind of typical biases that women have faced, whether they belonged in what was uh, considered a male-dominated domain, whether they were strong enough, whether they were experienced enough. Uh, there was a generation of women who felt that burden very, very, very much. And it still lingers to some degree. And I think women, women who are um, energetic, th uh, tub-thumping speakers get treated differently than men who behave the same way, for example, that's still true to some degree. So women, we're not past all of those barriers. Now, there's another clip that he goes on that I want to talk about, but I, I do want to stop because I, I can't think of a greater tub-thumping speaker who also uh, is a woman than than the one I'm looking at right now. And I'm not just blowing smoke. I, I, you're just a phenomenal speaker. And... Um, in fact, I remember, I think when, when Brie was uh, there covering your uh, campaign and, and uh, you and Chantel Brown both spoke at a church and it was just, it was sad. It was like, it was like <laughs> me going up with a ukulele followed by Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. It was like, I, I, they should not have let her go up there. I thought it was kind of cruel, in fact. But what do you think? Because we used to hear this during especially during Clinton, it was like, oh, you know, yeah, they, 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 she's not allowed to be a good speaker and she's not this and she's, and I'm sitting there and I'm like, she's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not criticizing her because she's a woman giving a tub thumping speech that's every, she's bad at it. But, but I don't want to just dismiss that because it's easy for me to dismiss that and I don't live in that space. But have you found that? Because I, I feel like if anybody can speak to the kind of criticism that a woman gets for being a great speaker in politics, it would be you. Yeah, definitely no lies detected on what Axelrod laid out. And for some women more than others, he's right. And to be a a, a, th a, a tub thumper, I would just say a speaker that can uh, galvanize uh, people in the room and, and make them feel something. Because I, I believe that you got to touch people in the heart before it gets to their head. If you're just in their head, you're never going to get them to move. But I, if I can touch you in your heart, and then get to your head, I can move you. And for me, I occupy an extra special space. So yes, all women go through it, no matter their ethnicity, how they identify, all of that. So that's a given. But if you are an African-American woman and then a darker skinned African-American woman on top of it, let's talk about colorism here. It is a harsher world 
So I occupy a harsher world within the political stratosphere for sure. And the fact that my opponent, even though you know I'm running against another black woman, she was lighter skin, they were able to use what are my strengths against me. You know, she's angry. You damn right I'm angry. I'm angry that 50% of the children in Cleveland are live in poverty. I'm angry that their mothers and their fathers, or in my language, their mamas and the daddies can't get a job. I'm angry that they don't live in safe neighborhoods. Yeah, I'm angry about a whole bunch of stuff. And if you're not angry, you don't have a pulse. And we don't have time to play with this. I'm angry that people living out on the streets. I'm angry that we got a legal system that sees poor people, black people, brown people, and especially black men are somehow more criminal than anybody else. And they exacerbate the pain that the black community has had to undergo generation after generation. So you know what? You're damn right. I'm angry. And I'm going to show the requisite emotion for the situation. And so people are, they can use that because we are all, we have all been socialized in this country that white is right. Black get back. Brown stick around. We have been socialized about what the norm should be, how a woman should act and comport herself. And when you are in that, when you are in the group that has been put upon the most, your behaviors, in air quotes, are critiqued more harshly than anybody else's. And so for me, yes, it, it was a very hard, it continues to be a hard journey. For me, because you just don't change the way that we've been all, all of us, me, you, the people listening to us. And unless you're willing to deconstruct your construction, that you have a consciousness about what is happening and why you're thinking what you're thinking, we all fall into these traps. So damn right, it's hard for women. It is especially hard uh, for women of color and especially hard for black women. And then when you put colorism on top of it, it just opens up a whole nother level of heartache. And hardship. When they came at me, they used the angry black woman. They used colorism. Of course. They used that I was not um I was not sufficiently loyal to the Democratic Party. When I made it clear, I don't worship a feet at the feet of a party. I worship God. I'm a believing woman, but I serve the people. And that's a difference. Yeah, I am a part of a party, but I don't I am not loyal to a fault. And so if my party is not delivering for the people, I have no use for you and I'm going to call you out. And that they did not want. They wanted to go along to get along person. And that's exactly what they got in Ohio 11. Yeah. And uh, I would also bring up donuts at this point. Because, <laughs> donuts and water. <laughs> uh, oh, God. Um, as someone who uh, I've, pretty familiar with what happens in with union and negotiations and bosses and whatnot. Um, I have always wondered what you thought about this because when you went to deliver uh, what, what uh, Bernie's people wanted to Democrats, um, they did not let you in and they sent out donuts. And a lot of people don't know what that means, but that's what during labor negotiations, when managers want to tell you to fuck off, they send union members donuts. Uh, so it was a giant fuck off to Nina and the people with Nina. And I and then all of the Democrats adopted donuts on Twitter in their yeah, handles. Yeah. 
And I always looked at it as pure uh, racism and misogyny myself. I don't know how you felt about it, but that to me was one of the most racist things that was happening in that campaign. Um, I did, Dave. I felt that way. But see, you are allowed to be racist and a misogynist against a progressive freaking fighting black woman. All is forgiven. You know, you can't do that to Clinton, but you can definitely do that to Nina Turner because she's a, a black woman and she's a freedom fighting progressive. So misogyny and racism is allowed, even though the racism. But, but Clinton was a hero Clinton. of the civil rights movement. Clinton doesn't fit <laughs> the racism. So. Right. The, yeah, the woman, the woman who had who had uh, prisoners working for free at the governor's mansion. Yeah, she was. I mean, yeah. That's nice correct. Job. Yeah, um, let me let me ask you this because you just, you brought something up that's really interesting. It came up a lot during. I didn't plan on talking about this, but but I kept hearing it, and I've long since learned, and I think a lot of people don't get this: that when a politician says something that moves you personally, um, uh, especially one that you know you admire, it's, it's it doesn't always mean it's the right thing. <laughs> In fact, it's very sure. often the wrong thing. But people kept saying Obama's not allowed to get mad, and. I just, I, I always felt like one of the things, as much as I was disappointed in him, if that guy had just gone off at one point, yes. it, it would have at least reached me. And like, but do you, do you believe that would have hurt him in a way that other things he did did not? Or is that just something the Democrats used to like explain why he was never going to stand up and fight for them? No, there's some truth to that. Yeah, absolutely. As a black man, I mean, he has some uh, rules of, of uh, rules of engagement that, because he is a black man that he has to adhere to. Yes, if he had gone off, they would have turned that into lack self-control. You know, look look at this yeah. black man. If, if Especially it's Hillary. A stereo- yeah, yeah. And, but the Clintons yeah. did that anyway, though. Let us not yeah, forget. Yeah, they did. They yeah. did that They're anyway. Like a- yeah. You know? so well, they, they came gonna- out and said, this guy's probably going to get killed because he's black. Like, yeah, of, of course. Right. Probably going to get killed. But we can avoid that. Just elect me. You know, I'm going to save, save a black life. <laughs> black lives matter. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was all about the black lives matter. You know, they the one that leaked that Reverend uh, Wright stuff. Yep. Oh, Come yeah. Come on yes. now. Yep. You know, you got Bill Clinton out there saying, you know, at a, at a, at a point in time, the man could shine his shoes and, you know, all account of that racist stuff that they said. But all was all could be forgiven. People act like they don't remember the Clintons doing that and saying the things that they said against Obama. But to, to your point, Josh, absolutely, he would have been judged differently than had it been a white man. And does that mean that he should not have gotten angry? No, he should have showed the requisite. That's why I say the requisite emotion to be an intellectual is one thing. And there's no doubt that he is smart. But when you are dealing with a certain level of suffering and destruction of people's lives, people want to know that you feel that thing and you can't intellectualize that thing. You got to show the requisite emotion. And again, that's how, you know, that's why people, they got trouble with me because I will show the requisite level of emotion. My friends tell me all the yeah. time, don't ever try to play poker. Ever. <laughs> 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 I 
And if you do, because yeah, I mean, the, the, but remember they loved when he sang Amazing Grace. It's like he's allowed to exhibit certain qualities of yeah, um, you know, because because Josh, I'm sorry for cutting you off, but black people are allowed to sing and dance for America. That is ex- what we are exactly, allowed that's to my do point. to entertain. Yes. yes. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah, and also allowed to to pray in the face of abuse and violence. And I love Amazing Grace too, by the way. I will say, sure, but it's like, yeah. but 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 that he was allowed to do that, of course. It's not threatening, but yeah, but that's it. But not even, even though it's quote unquote racialized behavior. In, in, in yeah, their minds. no, no problem. Um, about that, it, you know, please. liberals don't like anger at all. Uh, I because I get a lot of shit, and I'm like fuckers if you're not angry now when the fuck are you gonna get angry because the correct response to what's happening now is pure unbridled rage that's all it is if you're not feeling rage there's something fucking wrong with you very wrong with you dang that is it you know the great novelist james baldwin 20th century novelist james baldwin civil rights he, he was giving his message to black people. Your message is universal. And I get that. And I, I received that. But he was just saying to be a conscious minded black person in America is to be in a rage all the time. And damn it, yeah. if that is not true. And then the other point, I had a boss that I worked for. He was the second African-American mayor ever elected to the city of Cleveland. And he would say to his cabinet all the time, if your hair is on fire, act like your hair is on fire. I mean, can you visualize our hair being on fire? Are we going to still sit in the damn chair like ain't nothing happening? Yeah. That is the problem with politics right now, and especially on the Democratic side. Damn hair ain't on fire enough for me. That's right. That's 100% yeah. right. Well, let's, it's interesting that, that, that we got to this place because the rest of his comments about women, I think, tie into this in an in, in interesting way. But something else has happened, which is that there's certain values that people associate uh, with with women about empathy and about integrity. And women, I think, more than men now are seen as agents of change. And so you see this outpouring of women running for public office. And I have every belief that we're going to see far more women uh, in office in the in the next few years uh, than we've ever seen before, because uh they are seen as people who can clean up the mess. They're seen as people who can work <laughs> collaboratively, who are going to bring the sensibilities of, uh, of everyday people uh, uh, more into the forefront of our discussion. <laughs> cue, up, cue up Betty Wright. <laughs> it's so funny. I just, I, I, I don't know, I don't know who wrote it today on Twitter, but it was a black woman and she said, and she said, it, this is just a repeating history of people looking to women to clean up the fucking mess of white dudes. And he just he just said it out loud. Yeah, he did. I, but I also noticed how this thing started. I mean, I know we, we played the first clip a little while ago, but he started not talking about women minorities. By the time he's done, he's just talking about women. Yeah. He sort of, he's drifted away. I don't think he's too comfortable talking about anything but that. And I don't know, I, I, I cringed a little bit at the whole cleaning up thing. I think there's better ways to phrase it. Do you not, or is that just me? No, it's no, terrible. Here come the ladies to clean up after to us. Clean up the mess. Yeah. I mean, hell, in some ways he right, though. <laughs> I mean, the men have made a hell of a white men in particular. Uh, some black men. And oh, whoa. Hey. Men. But 
<laughs> present present company excluded, Dave. No, 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 no. I'm 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 Look at this room back there. I'm a no, my I don't house. know if my wife would disagree. But but yeah, I mean, <laughs> to clean up the mess and the whole empathy, integrity, and agent agents of change. Maybe some people see women, but all women are not empathetic, don't have yes. integrity, no. and damn sure are not agents of change. No, for sure. Klobuchar. I mean, what are we talking about? Like, who's the fucking agent? The the only way to rise up in the system is to be almost sociopathic and have no empathy. So those are the people, the women, and and the the non white people who get into power. That's that's how it fucking works. Some squeak through, but for the most part, they're all going to do the same harm that a white dude would. That's exactly right. Is they they cut from the same cloth ultimately. And it, it, it goes to that thing that um, uh, our friend Pete D'Alessandro in Iowa, who's our old show, oh, mentioned yeah. this first, that, that um, you know, Democrats, it's, it's they're obsessed with this stuff. They want to be, you know, and it's a tricky thing to talk about because, you know, I, I hate feeling like you have to pledge allegiance to an obvious flag. Um, yes, there should be more women and people of color in politics. I'd like to think sure. that goes without no saying, doubt. but, but they're like, they're all about first. Everything is first. And that's all that matters. We've got the first, you know, one-legged transsexual dwarf is now our secretary of something or other. And they never care about last. Everything is like the first, this Kamala Harris is the first black woman vice president. They don't care about the last black child to die in poverty which Come is on. the more important thing to be focused on. And somehow there's this belief that if you keep going, hey, we did this, we did that. One of the things that made me just, it was so damn funny. Somebody pointed this out a while ago that um, Donald Trump was the first president to have an all-woman communications team. But nobody, nobody hyped that. He deserves some credit for that. To me, if anything, there's the argument because I would argue these are probably all terrible women. I'm I'm thinking if you're working then for Donald that. Trump, <laughs> but you're really pointing out the superficiality of their yeah. argument to begin with. It really should be about the substance yeah. of the thing, and then all things yeah. being equal, if they are women, if they are of color, you know, have other uh, identified yes. factors, then that's like the bonus. But if that's the only thing that matters. And we we going down the wrong path from the beginning. Yeah, we should be more focused on the identities of the people who are being helped. And, and the problem it. is, I know coming from somebody who looks like me or like Dave, that that sounds very self serving. I'm not getting into politics, but it's like, but but yeah, I'm so less concerned about you know the successes, the the, the some some really wealthy, powerful person shattering some glass ceiling that the rest of us are never going to get near. Than, than about the impact on people who are genuinely hurting. That's really only for them. I mean, absolutely. Does it matter? Do people need to see themselves? You know, do children need to know, uh, you know, that, you know, black children or brown children or, or children of other ethnicity or gender or sexual orientation? Do they need to see people who are like them physically? Absolutely. But if that is the yeah. only thing, it cannot be the only thing. Yeah, because it's not. I remember being with my nieces. I was with my nieces who were teenagers at the time; they're older now. And and somebody was making the argument that like they need a woman needs to be president so they can see a woman can be president. And they're all looking at each other like, I know that. (laughs) 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 You need to to talk to some of these girls. I think if you think they're walking around going, I can't. 
it was so frustrating. But let's 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 go out on this one thing. Um, just just wrap it up with this. Um, uh, this is just a fun bit here. And think, listen to the way he talks about this person, and tell me it's not just me. Candidates who succeed reflect their communities. Um, you know, an Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Uh, is a good candidate for her district. She reflects her district. It is a majority-minority district. It has a lot of young, progressive voters now. It's, it's a district that's changed over time. It is really important to be at one with the people you're, you're, you're trying to serve. He's leaving out all the other people, and that, that's, that's a buck. That's a... Bunch of crap, right there. <laughs> Doesn't it, does it feel like he's 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 trivializing her? Very 100%. much. Yeah, he is. Uh, yeah, and is not even de- describing the, her community in totality. To, let me just right. throw that out there. But yeah, he's definitely tri- trivializing her. He also yeah, and I, I would have liked to hear him talk about her when she was running against what's his name. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. About that. And look, all they do, all these people do is act like leftists don't exist. Like, that's the name of the game. I always think about when Trump ran, every single place in the primaries he went, registrations went through the fucking roof. Because people who had stopped voting were voting again. That's what was happening with Trump. And that's what would happen with Bernie. Because people who had never been represented would have started voting again. That's right. And so when you bring up someone like AOC and say, well, she represents her, well, how the fuck would you know? If a, if a leftist ran somewhere out in Kansas, you don't know what would happen because actually Kansas and Kentucky and these places have an old, old history of leftism. South, South Dakota, Minneapolis have really deep old roots of leftism. So they, they just act like that's not a thing that's because exactly their party right. doesn't speak to anyone. They they have absolutely abandoned popular politics to the right. And so, of course, they think this. They're they're idiots. They're the reason why we're barely struggling to beat blatant fascists. And when you run on a populist message, especially when people are in time of crisis, mm-hmm. they will respond. And Donald Trump, yes. you know, and, and as David Chappelle's, you know, described on Saturday Night Live. Uh, yes, he, that was he, brilliant. He, yeah, it was it was beautiful. I mean, he he how did he frame it? He's a liar that tells the truth or something like that. But, yeah. Um, yeah. It was the populist message and the raging against the status quo and the machine, even though Trump is the status quo. But his message spoke to the hurt that people were feeling because of neoliberalism. And he's a yeah. snake oil salesman, no doubt about it. But he ruled that populist message. And, and that and just is giving why he lip so service successful. to those things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just saying it. People people aren't dumb. I mean, yes, some no. people are dumb. But a lot well, of, you know, right. Trump is, one of the things that always blew me away. I mean, I, I said this during the election. is like he is, for a guy who's told more lies per minute of any politician in history, he's also in a weird way the most honest person who's ever run for president. Yeah. Exactly and Josh, just real quickly on that point, I mean, he I mean, it's what David Chappelle said. Look, he he came out yeah. and said, Hey, all them people in here are crooks. And and then they, but but and he went back inside. And and that is absolutely yeah. the truth. Remember when Trump said, he said, I bought all these people. And he's right. Yeah. Whether they were Democrat or Republican, Trump got a picture somewhere with them. He didn't give a donation. He was telling the truth. 
He said, buy and yeah. sell these people. Yeah. That was yeah. the truth. And even, yeah, and the same thing with the uh, the 9-11 line where he, you know, they said, you know, yeah. George Bush saved us. And he said, no, he let the worst terrorist attack of all time. Why the fuck can the Democrat ever say that? Like, it's just. Yeah, that never It's happened. so simple. It's so They're so yeah. scared. It's so easy. So yeah, they, they, uh, they are scared. And a scared man, I have another mentor that says, scared man, get you killed. And that's what's yeah. happening. Yeah. They, they get in yes. our nation. That's why we sitting up here talking about whether or not the democracy is going to last and all of that is because these people are too scared, one, to tell the truth. And they're too scared to get out here and fight, like mm-hmm. seriously street fight. These neo-fascist Republicans. Yeah, go on the office. And here's my here's here's my. I, I just want to bounce one idea off you, and I'm sure it's simple, but just and then and then we'll uh, shut it down for the for the episode. But you know, it, it seems to me that you don't even need to fight that hard if you're actually providing alternatives to people. I am convinced to this day that if Democrats were actually servicing the needs of poor and working people, it wouldn't matter what Republicans were saying and doing. Because if you're sitting there True. and you've got a roof over your head and you're not sweating it, and you're not looking for somebody to blame. It's a hell of a lot harder to play all these, these, you know, these, these, whoever they are, this minority is coming to get you, what have you. And, and they wouldn't resonate. It's like, that's the thing that really gets, okay, you're not street fighters. How about you just do things for people? Yeah. How about that? Wouldn't that be something? Yeah. I, that would be something mm-hmm. that would be life changing. And, but that, that uh, takes altering. work. That's not hanging yeah. out at parties and going to fundraisers. It's actual work to get the work yes. done. And they're lazy, lazy people. They're just and having a consciousness too, and actually yeah. having some, you know, caring about the people that you really being in service to the people you purport to care about. Yeah, it would take too much. It take <laughs> Josh, you're asking for today. I thought we had solved it. I thought we were done. I thought we could just go home and that would be it. <laughs> you're asking for too much. You're being unreasonable, Josh. I'm, I'm sorry. That's my, that's my middle name. Um, Senator Nina Turner, we are, we are honored to have had you. Uh, we look forward to picking up with you in our next episode. Uh, if, if we haven't, if we haven't destroyed you by making you look at this garbage, um, <laughs> this is what we do. We bring on people we love and we make them watch terrible things. And yeah. Uh, hey, be thankful. But, uh, we didn't make you watch the West wing thing. You might've lost your mind. Yeah, we did seven seasons of the West Wing. Seven seasons. I cannot of the West Wing. believe you all did that. Oh, God bless you. You're going to heaven automatically because <laughs> we've been to hell. Uh, we will be back. We'll be back with another episode. And uh, thank you for joining us. Baby, I know you got your thing for campaign strategies. You dig it. And I do too And I know your head is full of questions But I got friends Who can give all the answers to you Oh yeah We got Kyle Rowe DC's King of Folk We got David Axelrod With the junk all in his trunk Free on mine, the guarantee, and now they ask in return is a nominal fee.
support team uh brian siano our free floating agent of chaos aka research guy and also colin mccoy who does all of our music you can also find him he out there in music world he is known as diesel boots 